This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to big results in the Champions League as Antonio Conte is left fuming by a late VAR call, which means Tottenham's chances of progression go right down to their final game. Liverpool are already through, as are Manchester City. Chelsea looked very, very solid as they go through as group winners. But how far can their boss, Graham Potter, take them? We'll talk about some of the big clubs that never made it across the continent as well. Juventus, Juve in hell, according to the Italian newspapers. We'll talk about what's next for them. And Barcelona as well, after they were knocked out alongside their fellow La Liga compatriots, Atletico Madrid. We'll react to Unai Emery's appointment at Aston Villa and do our alternative Player of the Month nominations. All that and more coming on this episode of The Game. Hello and welcome back to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Ian Hawkey, Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft after... Another important week. We're getting to the business end of these Champions League groups. Good news for some, very bad news for others. Uh, Antonio Conte, let's start with Tottenham Hotspur. Fuming after that late VAR call, it meant his side missed out on a massive win that would have sent them through. It means they must now avoid defeat in Marseille on the final round of group games. He was also sent off Conte for celebrating what he thought was a dramatic injury time winner for Harry Kane against Sporting Lisbon, as I say, one that would have sent his side through, only for that goal, of course, to be ruled out. There was lots of debate over VAR, and I think we just get this out of the way straight away, Gregor. It was offside. It should have been disallowed. No point having loads of conjecture. I suppose technically you're right, yeah, but there's so many aspects to this that kind of drive you mad, really, to be really honest. <laughs> I mean, the first thing is to say is that it was unusual in that it's about where Emerson Royale's body was in relation to the ball, and it's rare that the player's body is ahead of the ball, if you know what I mean, when he yeah, when yeah. he when he hit it back. So that kind of that confuses the picture a little bit. And then the next bit is whether it was a, a deflection or an intentional kind of block by uh, Nazinho. Look, the player's running back to try and make a block, but it's still a deflection, so... I think ultimately it is the right call. But I also have sympathy because sympathy for defenders generally nowadays. There's so many parts to this, like moving parts. Like when the ball's thrown in by Perisic, both Brian Hill and Romero are offside in an offside position. Then because it, uh, Royal heads it back across, Kane, you know, Kane wasn't. It's the second phase. There's, it's just impossible to defend nowadays. Like there's so many moving parts. I just don't. I, I hate the fact that players can be offside, but they're not interfering. They're judged to be not interfering in play. One moment and the next minute, they're allowed to be back involved in the play because it's another, a new phase. I know that's completely off piece, but if you just look at this, there's so many different parts to it that we're moving around. It's a nightmare being a defender nowadays. Johnny, what did you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I mean Greg has expressed the complexities very well there. And, and I think it, 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 it just comes back to the philosophical question of VAR, you know, whether we actually want it or not. Because when you go through it all, the process worked. It gave the factually correct decision, but what everyone's left unhappy with uh, is the the delay, uh, all the the variables that that Gregor's talked about, and then the whole marginality of it. And if we're unhappy about all these things being in the mix, don't have VAR. If we want, you know, some kind of absolute hundred percent black or white ruling on on things, and and you know, again off piece, but I argue that the spirit of football's laws, in fact, the letter of the laws, if you read them, are actually quite vague. So it's not an absolutist, it's not a game with an absolutist set of rules. But okay, we've, if, if we want to make factual decisions, 
then we have VAR and VAR worked. It just took a long time to work and it left us having to go back and look at lots of intricate things. So I had no real problem with the decision given we've got VAR. What I actually had a problem with, I think, was was Conte's remarks afterwards, which I think were dangerous and a bit disingenuous about honesty and stuff like that. I still kind of somehow do have a bit of a problem with the decision. I remember we discussed this a few weeks back about there's a kind of new category of foul as well that is only a foul once a goal has been scored because the game's never stopped otherwise until you know we're going back to forensically look over a possible misdemeanor in the build-up to the goal. It still falls into that category for me because you you watch it and and all of your instincts say that this that that should have been a goal. Johnny mentioned there the kind of how how you know how close it is to call. You're also kind of wondering you question whether the technology still exists to really know absolutely definitively whether the ball was in line with Kane or ahead of Kane or behind Kane. It's like it just it's just it's so confusing. There's just it's just all your instincts are saying are telling you one thing, and then you know you after four minutes and you you kind of analyze the laws and you look at every fine detail of it, you kind of come to an understanding that it is the right decision, but it still feels instinctively wrong to me. I wouldn't have VAR. I mean, I, it, I've, I've thought that for a while. The application hasn't improved the game. And one, one of the things I always loved about football and, and preferred to rugby was you had a game with really simple rules, but also quite subjective rules and rules that felt instinctively right. Compared to rugby, which I always found like, you know, it's like admin trying to understand a game of rugby with all the nuances of offside. And I think actually football's starting to creep. It's, it's over-regulated now because of the combination of VAR and trying to adjust and tweak the rules to to accommodate it. And, I, you know, I, I, I just don't think it's improved the game. Simple as that. And I, I, I'd rather we didn't have it anymore. I agree. Okay, let's move on then. Uh, Johnny, what did you think of the football <laughs> under Antonio Conte? Tottenham should have got the results, shouldn't they? They haven't been playing great recently. Their fans aren't really delighted. Was it one of those nights for them? Actually, I think if you were, if we were doing a Benfica, a Sporting Lisbon, sorry, a focused podcast, we'd actually be saying that Sporting should have won. They had some amazing chances on the counter-attack. And just before that Kane disallowed goal, Porro, had a brainstorm where he, you know, smashed the ball into the stand um, when they were actually in a really good position. So, I don't know. I thought I thought a draw was probably fair. I thought Sporting were fantastic in the in the first half. I thought that the, the counter attack that they played was much better than Spurs's counter attack. She had the great Marcus Edwards goal and Tottenham. So we're going to get on to Conte's tactics, I'm sure. But I think you've got to look at tactics, but then you've also got to look at how they're being expressed or applied by the team and I think the, the issues there would start with Spurs intensity varying throughout games so it you know the Conte ball was pretty good in the second half when they picked up the pace they transitioned more quickly um, and they, they they pressed harder there was more intensity in the game but it was it was flat in the first half and it was slow and dull and that's that's been a an issue with Spurs recently so it, it, this is what I'm struggling with with Spurs Conte Spurs is not so much the tactical blueprint because that comes down to taste, but we know that Conte's blueprint brings results. It's the the, the flaws, I suppose, in in how Spurs are playing it, the the varying intensity within games or from game to game, and also probably a lack of pace overall in the team, which again makes that Conte style of trying to transition very fast, counter-attack very quickly, difficult to play if the team's a bit bit sort of one-paced. 
1-1 was fair because it was a mixed bag, I thought, from both teams. Ian Hawkey, this is the point that I bring you in and apologise for those who might have to adjust their uh, listening settings at the moment because I have not got a great voice today and I apologise for that. But also, you've got the builders in. So there might be some clanging and banging going on in the background. But anyway, what's your view on Conte's football at the moment? Uh, well, he certainly needs the builders in with, with Spurs at the moment. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a worrying slump in a way, isn't it? They were, you know, they really, they were a very efficient team a month ago. And, you know, they've lost a bit of that. And I, I, I mean, I think they'll go through because I think uh, Marseille aren't really to be trusted, even though they're, they're a stronger team than they have been uh, over the last decade or so in the uh, Champions League as almost ever with Conte once once the results don't start coming then uh, you can't really fall back on the cushion of being uh, terribly entertaining so yeah uh, he's got some things to sort out I mean I, I you know I think he's probably overall got got the right idea of the formula for, for Spurs, but um, they need some correction fairly soon. And, and you can see he's uh, he's not in the happiest of moods. Gregor, will it turn around quickly? I actually think, by the way, Marseille, Marseille at home, Tottenham without Conte on the touchline. I mean, there's already ingredients there for me. But anyway, Gregor, um, do you think the football will turn around soon? No. I think, <laughs> look, I don't think with any of this is all that surprising either. I think the thing that Johnny said was is, is the most worrying and kind of pressing thing it's the the intensity that peaks and troughs um and as you said they were pretty stale in the first half and then you know full of energy and intent and for large swathes of the second so um that is that is a bit of a pattern through the season it's often been when they need to try and find something as well it's that's it's too easy to kind of to wait for a moment where you actually need to go and you know salvage a draw or or, or go and win a game uh, to turn it on and that's been a problem this season for them but also it's just about it's always it kind of always been the case with Conte's team is that scoring first and scoring enough goals it kind of makes it makes games very comfortable for them because they can sit back and and uh, defend and sort of soak up pressure and again strike teams on the break and they've not done that often enough so I, i'm not expecting to see a great deal of change i just think they rely heavily on the best players providing at the top end of the pitch and 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 consistently as well and without Kulisevsky uh, that's been an issue for them so far this season Okay I wonder if things are going to change uh, at Liverpool moving forward we had a, a false dawn last week didn't we at this time uh, after back-to-back wins of course the defeat to Nottingham Forest but they have qualified for the knockout stages Jurgen Klopp's side after a 3-0 win over Ajax that puts them into at the last 16 and it means that they've gone into the knockout stages in all six of their Champions League campaigns under Jurgen Klopp but actually, I think we got another indication that they might be a bit of an up and down team, a roller coaster side at the moment. I wonder whether, Johnny, you think that that's going to be the story of their season, that this will continue. It's beginning to look that way because, um, you know, after that City game, as you said, you, you expected that that'd be the start of one of those Liverpool runs under Klopp. We've, we've covered it before that, that this is a transitioning team. I think there's real signs that 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 one of the departments they needed to to blend and fix, i.e. the forward line is starting to to come together with getting Salah through the middle a bit more. And his goal, I don't know, you know, there won't be many better finishes than than that this season. It was absolutely exquisite. Um, Nunes starting to, to to come into things. And, you know, Firmino's been a bit of an unsung hero. So it's starting to, starting to make a bit more sense up front. But the, 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 the still, it's still not the same Liverpool um, in terms of, Playing against the ball, even even in last night's game, there were there were periods at Ajax were fairly 
uh, comfortable and dominant, and, and 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 I don't think that's quite right. And they just need to, you know, settle things down a bit at, at the back. But I think I, I think overall, you know, if you take the Forest thing out of it, Liverpool are in a much better position now than they were three or four weeks ago when there were all those bizarre, daft questions about Jurgen Klopp. I think there are signs they're coming together. I think I think Darwin's you know, adaptation is a big thing, and I think Salah um, finding ways to get Salah in more central positions, which is what's, you know, a ruse that starred in the Champions League against Rangers is the way forward for them. Only thing I'd say is, I, I having watched Liverpool, I then watched the highlights and saw this brilliant player for Bayern Munich called Sadio Mane just making incredible <laughs> runs. And I thought, yeah, you know, of course they're still missing something and we'll continue to miss something without him. Nunes is kind of, the one thing you you, you can say about him is he's always, you know, your eyes are always drawn to him. He's always affecting the game. It's sometimes for good and sometimes for not, you know, not so good. He missed an absolute sitter. Uh, there's moments where he kind of, I would imagine playing with him, you'd be tearing your hair out where, like a loose pass or sometimes it's fairly kind of humdrum uh, for players of this level and he's not quite doing it. And then, but look, he, he pops up and he's he's increasingly affecting games positively and getting goals. So I think we're likely to see him develop and grow kind of more and more through the season, which is obviously a huge positive. And as, as Johnny said, just the fact that Salah is now popping up in that kind of familiar way to hugely decisive uh, moments is augurs well for Liverpool as well. You know, you look at the way they set out the team and basically a diamond midfield, and as Paul Joy said in the in his report today, it's looked almost like he's just finding a way of getting his best players on the pitch and you know, still got quite a few injuries, a bit thin in, in the ranks behind that starting eleven. I think it is going to be a season, or certainly between now and the World Cup anyway, I wouldn't be surprised to see more peaks and troughs and then we need to wait and see how every team comes back after, you know, what kind of state they come back in after the World Cup. But look, Ajax were really good as well. As Johnny said, first half, large ways they were dominant. They could have been 1-0 up. They should have been 1-0 up in inside three minutes. Hit the post and that would have been Liverpool behind again. And there was, the Ajax had, had several chances after that too to, to take the lead. And the game takes on a different complexity. Uh, complexion then so just big players stepping up and making decisive telling moments which they hadn't done for for parts of the season is big for Liverpool when they're not playing at that kind of free-flowing dynamic kind of pressing machine in that kind of way that we've, we've known them so for so long. Uh, Ian I've got the feeling though that, that their season might boil down to cup competitions if you like they're into the knockouts in the Champions League where they've been very very good of, of exceptional under Jurgen Klopp his record absolutely brilliant as a Liverpool boss. And I kind of watched the, the game and thought they're made for it. They're probably going to stand a better chance of winning the Champions League, strangely, than, than you know any other competition in many ways because they have such a great record in it. Do you think they, they still stand a very good chance of winning the competition? Um, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, logically, that 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 which sort of should be their, their principal target now in terms of chasing a trophy. And, and just picking up on what, what Gregor said about you know, the unknowns about the effect of the, the World Cup. In a way, in some respects, Liverpool, certainly up front, might uh, might, might be, you know, might be better refreshed than than some of their competitors, given that Salah's not going to the World Cup. Diogo Jota, I'm not sure what his schedule for recovery is, but he won't be at the World Cup. Um, so, you know, that's, and, and, and if ever a squad needed, you know, some sort of, some sort of break given what they went through last season. Um, it's it's them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think they can be reasonably 
confident about a champions the Champions League because you know they're pretty good at it after all. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see what happens um, against Napoli. Both of them are through, but I think if my maths hasn't let me down, um, there's still a potential uh, tussle for for top place. Although although Napoli obviously in the driving seat. Yes, indeed. Well, it will be intriguing to see what Jurgen Klopp does. That that draw for the knockout stages could be make it a very difficult run for for Liverpool if they don't come top. But yeah, doing very well. Good result for them in the end. <laughs> Chelsea bouncing back from defeat in their opening game of the groups in the Champions League to advance to the last 16 as their group winners with one game to spare. So a very decent turnaround. Of course, two different managers during that space of time. And two great goals on the evening. Mateo Kovacic, Kai Havertz as well, ending Red Bull Salzburg's 40-match unbeaten home record. At Chelsea joining Manchester City in the knockout stage. City, uh, goalless draw against Dortmund. Rian Mahrez missing a penalty in that one. Let's focus, though, I think, on Chelsea. Um, Graham Potter is the second Englishman to go undefeated in his first nine games as Chelsea manager in all competitions. William Lewis in 1906-7. Now, I thought you were going to give us a many... quiz question there. That would have been a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, the re- well, the reason it wasn't is because there haven't been that many uh, English managers of late at Chelsea, to be perfectly no. honest. But it kind of does underline that he has had a pretty decent start. Johnny, how surprised slash impressed are you with, with Graham Potter's beginning to life at Chelsea? I'm not surprised. Um, I'm massively impressed. But this guy has got so much in his in his locker as a manager, not just not just the tactical smarts that I'll get onto in a moment, but the thing that struck me visiting him at Brighton and, and observing him from afar was what a what a good manager he is, as in managing an environment, as in providing a kind of a path and an identity. And he's so quickly done that with Chelsea. You know, if you think how, how good Thomas Tuchel was. He just seems, it seems years ago now that Thomas Tuchel was Chelsea manager already. It seems like a Graham Potter club, a Graham Potter team. The calmness that he brings to his work, but the intelligence has, has been so vital for, you know, for, for a club that, 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 that's often in, in a febrile state. So that side of things has been very impressive. I think the football's been really impressive. His identity's been put on it, but there's a resilience to it as well. You know, against United at the weekend, they came through a pretty torrid first half to almost win the game. They, they That was a difficult game they had in Salzburg and, and bounced back from, from the equaliser to, to score. And it was, you know, you just look at it, he's... <laughs> He's changing his lineup all the time. He's, he's got Sterling and Pulisic almost at wing back, Cucurella and uh, central defence. You know Havertz playing in the front two. Next week it will be something different, but the playing principles are are, are are very clear and consistent. I guess gushing about Graham Potter is not a. It's become a very familiar sort of experience, and we're all doing it. But he deserves it. This has been a brilliant start for him. And um, as I say, biggest compliment I could pay him would be that, you know, four or five weeks on from losing Champions League winning manager, this is not Thomas Tuchel and Chelsea anymore in anyone's mind. This is this is a Graham Potter club and uh, that, that to put your stamp on something so quickly is, is really impressive. What do you think of it, Gregor? I, I guess none of us are surprised. I mean, you know, well, there were some questions about whether he was. Gonna I was going to say, yeah. I mean, I was the one that said, look, he, he didn't have that sort of aggression 
almost came across as too nice for for this sort of job because I don't know. It just struck me that a lot of the, the big managers, especially on the touchline, just screaming, shouting, you know, gesticulation, whatever it might be. He just seemed a bit more subdued and friendly and whether that was conducive to modern day football, whether the players needed to see something else, but actually when you've got it, maybe you've just got it. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems that way. It just all seem, seems so serene, doesn't it? It's like, there's just, he's taken over. There's signs of, of what he wants his team to look like and the kind of tactical flexibility. And it, and it looks to have the players on board. He's got buy-in from them all. Uh, even though as, as Johnny's pointed out there, it's, it's a very different approach to, any of his predecessors, uh, his kind of man management approach, and yeah, it just all you know. I said the other week that it, you know they drew nil nil with Brentford and came on afterwards, and, like in the interview, and said, "Yeah, I, th- I thought we played pretty well." You know, and it was just like it all just seemed kind of so jarring that he was kind of he was pretty much accepting of the fact that football is a you know a, a tight margins game. Uh, sometimes you'll play well and you'll not get the the result that you you hope for. Um, we'll move on to the next one. It's like, this is so not Chelsea, but it's it's working. It's working so far. It will be interesting to see if, you know, there, there are dips in how, you know, how the kind of, this fan base feel with, you know, how, how they kind of accept that when they've when it's so different to what they've been used to. You know, there's, there's always been problems thrown up at Chelsea historically in terms of some big, big egos and big names. So, you know, there will be bumps in the road ahead. What he's done so far, you can't argue with. And as Johnny said, you know, he's playing... Pulisic and Sterling sometimes at wing back, a left back in Cucurella and a kind of converted midfielder in Chalaba alongside a 38 year old central defender in a back three in the Champions League. And it, you know, it doesn't look kind of perilous. <laughs> it looks organised and it, because as, as Johnny has said, he's almost like a post formations manager. And there's, some, you know, there's been some interesting quotes from him in that regard. When, first of all, when Thomas Frank asked him, and as, as I mentioned the other week, you know, why to change formation so much? He said, that's not the end goal. That's the kind of, that's not, a formation is not the end goal. It's about how we can manipulate space, basically. And then again, he was he was asked about playing Sterling and Pulisic, uh, the wing-back roles after this game. And he, he kind of broke it down, said that getting quick switches of play against this team, against Salzburg, would, he saw as, and, you know, getting good players who are good in, in 1v1 situations on the ball quickly, you know, was going to be a, a way of them breaking them down. He felt that they left space on either flank, so that's why he did it. And he does sometimes give you these little glimpses into his mind. So intriguing new direction and new era for Chelsea. Uh, what do you think of the situation under Potter at Chelsea, Ian? And, and where do you think he could take them? He's got something going for him. I mean, Chelsea are you know a notoriously trigger happy club, but but they are under new ownership, and you know that is a an image that the new owners are anxious to change. So that's, you know, that's a that's a basis of faith that that he's got and he shares with the people who brought him in. I mean, I was interested in what you said about, you know, the, the apparent lack of touchline melodrama, which 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 makes him quite distinctive actually in the in the theatre of modern elite football. Um but he's also distinctive is because he isn't, you know, he isn't a he isn't waving his dogmas around all the time in every press conference. You know, I believe in this, and this is, you know, these are these are this is the system I have faith in, or, or allow that to be projected onto him. You know, he is, he is clearly very flexible in the sense of 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 how he arranges a team um, and how he how he regards how you set up a team, and and you know, we we see this now every week and sometimes several times within a match and and it's and it's fascinating and it's um you know it's quite educative in a way and i should think quite a lot of 
other managers with a great deal more Champions League experience on their CVs are watching him and, and learning a few things. It's great. And and I guess it's 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 good for, for English football, you know, which remembers the days of William Lewis very fondly. But um, you know, <laughs> English English football is in in a massively powerful position now in the Champions League, but the big absence has been has been an English manager to 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 wave the flag, and, and you know he looks really well set to do that. Johnny and I have pointed that out on many occasions. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Where do we think Chelsea can go in the Champions League this season? I mean, I've written dark horses down. They obviously won the competition two seasons ago. I don't know. I don't know how long it needs to be since you last won a trophy to be dark horses in it. But maybe we didn't expect them to to do pretty well this season. You know, this kind of standard for an English club now to get into the the last eight, do we see them as, as going further at this point in time? Are, they, are the roots there for a very, very strong team in the Champions League this season? Personally, I, I, you know, the goal scoring, even with Aubameyang there, might be a bit of an issue, especially if he's not fit, obviously, because without him, I don't see a natural goal scorer, even though we saw two beautiful goals uh, scored in midweek. I mean, I don't know what you think. They've, they've got depth. Surely they've got depth after the summer that they had anyway. Uh, Johnny, what do you think? No, I, I mean, look, I, th- I think Man City are out there as clear favourites. And then there's a second group of teams of which Chelsea would definitely be be one of them. And they, they don't concede too many goals under Graham Potter. They, they barely have been losing games. And that's a good recipe. Even if even if you're right about the top of the pitch, you, they, they could do with that extra sort of goal source. But that doesn't always, that isn't always essential to win the Champions League. And Graham Potter is pretty good at European football. You know, he, he, he nearly took Ostersons into the... The last eight, I think it was. You know, they should have beaten Arsenal all those years ago in that in that tie. So if you can do that with Ostersons in the Europa League, you can you can go all the way with Chelsea in the in the Champions League brackets if City don't maximise their own potential. There is a, uh, also one issue that I think I just keep noticing with Chelsea. Um, maybe it's because I too grew up in Brent of Jamaican heritage. I just want Raheem Sterling to excel at all times, club and country. This is a Raheem Sterling stan account and. I just don't think I don't think this system, even the system with England, you really get the best out of Raheem Sterling, even though there might be goals and there might be assists. It just looks to me like, you know, that sort of he's he's almost playing on the corner of the penalty box, you know, nine times out of ten, much more narrow than we used to see him playing out wide for from Manchester City, of course, we've got the wing-back system at Chelsea. And that is a player that I think, if you do get the best out of him, you do have a better chance of going on to win this competition. And I wonder if Potter will have an answer to that, whether he's just happy with it as it is, as long as the results keep going. I don't know. I want to see Sterling, you know, excel and put those big, big numbers up and be one of the top players in, in Europe, the world, the Premier League, the Champions League. Um, I don't know whether he is still the player that you need to prioritise. Izzy, what do you think, Gregor? Yeah, I don't think Potter will see it like that, that he needs to prioritise a player. He wants to get the best out of all his players, but I, I, I completely understand where you're coming from with this. There's no natural fit for him in, in that kind of formation that Potter plays. Probably going to be somewhere in that front too, uh, is where he'll play most of his football, I would suggest. I wouldn't say that's probably his, his best position. He's got to, He's going to have to score a lot of goals. You look at some of Brighton's players that have kind of... We've seen new aspects to their game. Look at Danny Welbeck, for example, and the way he kind of flourished at Brighton and the way someone like Trostard is so flexible now. Gross as well. Like There's players who you wouldn't really necessarily now pigeonhole them in a certain position. I know we know we know Sterling 
so well as someone who flourishes in a kind of in that wide role. And he has played in a number ten role as well. I think that kind of it's not just Potter who's flexible. A lot of his players become flexible. So perhaps it's kind of on Ryan Sterling to to show that you know where he's best to play in this team, and perhaps that's a few roles, and he's got to contribute and get numbers, as you said, Hugh from a different part of the pitch. It's difficult for Sterling. It really is. I mean, wing back, Raheem Sterling, do you, do you I mean, come on. We don't we don't you know, you don't buy Raheem Sterling to play left wing back, do you? I mean, I don't know. I'm just mm-hmm. a bit head in hands even though Chelsea got the result, Johnny. Yeah, it's not his best position, um, but I'd probably play him through the middle if you wanted to think purely of him and what suits him in in this particular system. He could he could play as one of those two sort of three uh, running forwards, but they 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 need him at the moment there, and it, you know the yes he he could maybe uh, benefit from 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 some of this um, you know some some of Potter's teachings and and the tactical flexibility. Although I have to say he's always been a very tactically smart player. I mean even as a kid at Liverpool he floated around and played all those roles in the in the front four. So he he can he can do this, and that's probably one of the reasons he's there is because he can do the tactical side of it. Um, and and yeah, we just got to buy into the fact that Potter Ball is about the collective and not the individual. And at the moment, he is having to do a job that that isn't going to be the best for him and the best for for England. But that I don't I don't think he'll stay at wing back for forever. Okay, look, let's move on. Just to say though, uh, Graham Potter will take Chelsea to his former club Brighton at the weekend. I'm sure he'll get a fantastic reception. The tactical battle between Deserby and Potter will be I think an interesting one for us to watch and react to, but Ian very quickly on it. How do you see it going? I imagine that uh, someone as studious as Graham Potter will apply his expert knowledge into what Brighton can do and and how they will likely approach the game. And I imagine Chelsea will pick up three points. OK, uh, we'll have reaction to that uh, on Monday. We'll see exactly how Chelsea get on. Up next, we'll be looking at some of the big clubs uh, in European competition that failed to make it out of their group. Barcelona, Atletico Madrid and Juventus will also be reacting to the news that Unai Emery is the new Aston Villa boss. But if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. Hit that notification button as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Juventus failed to make the knockout stages of the Champions League for the first time since 2013, piling huge pressure on the manager Max Allegri and Andrea Agnelli, the club's chairman. The old lady are already 10 points behind the leaders, Napoli in Serie A and sit down in eighth. Juve in hell read the headline on the front of Corriere dello Sport. Uh, well, Tuto Sport asked, who will pay the damages? Ian, how long can this situation go on? Well, according to Andrea Agnelli, there's probably two answers to that. This situation will cease when his pet project, the European Super League, gets off the ground. More imminently, I imagine Allegri will lose his job, although Agnelli has also been slightly hoist by another petard of his by saying that Juventus never sack managers in the middle of a season. So uh, we'll have to see how, how far he sticks with that. Um, uh, yeah, it's... It, 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 it's a terrible mess, Juventus, and they were a terrible mess for quite large slices of the the game at Benfica. They were four one down at one one stage, and then and then came back to at least put some respect on the on the scoreline. But but yeah, this uh, you know it, this is a it, it it they were in a tough group with Paris Saint Germain and and a, and a really impressive and informed Benfica, but all the same um, they lost to Maccabi Haifa. And 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 yeah, they've made they've made a thorough mess of their season so far, and and this with you know a squad that was was supposed to be ready to to rebuild after a difficult couple of years. Um, they spent an enormous amount on Dusan Vlaovic, the centre forward, in January. They got a lot of um, illustrious free signings, including Paul Pogba, who's yet to play, um, Angel Di Maria. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it terrible strategy. Um, and and really, some really, really insipid performances as well. What would you say are the big footballing reasons behind their, their lack of good results? Uh, well, I suppose there's, um, you know, uh, sort of over the longer term, uh, there's been a lot of disruption. They've, they've changed coach, what, three of the last four summers. Uh, they brought in Andrea Pirlo, who had no experience, um, uh, with with an idea that they would they would play Pirlo esque. Uh, football and and be slightly easier on the eye. That didn't work. They had Maurizio Sarri, who's not who's not to everybody's taste, but but at least he 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 won a title. And then they brought back Allegri because because they knew him and had been successful in the past. And and uh, you know he hasn't had the same uh, touch, and he's been very frustrated um, by the various comings and goings. I suppose strategically as well, there's there's a Ronaldo issue. So much was banked on bringing in Cristiano Ronaldo because they because Juventus thought they were in touching distance of of the Champions League, and they thought that he would be the magic formula to take them that extra that extra yard. It didn't, and you know the treasury was drained by by the cost of signing him and the cost of of paying him. And 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 in a sense, they're still sort of they're, they're still recovering from from that bad strategic error, um, and, and also in a sense, uh, the way they 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 played towards towards Ronaldo, funneling themselves tactically towards Cristiano Ronaldo up at the top. Um, they they seem very directionless now, and and really a, a, a team in search of search of the right methods. There needs to be big changes. I think a lot of Juventus fans desperate for that to happen, but they aren't the only uh, big club in Europe where the fans aren't happy. Uh, Barcelona knocked out of the Champions League group stage for the second season running after Inter Milan beat Victoria Pilsen 4-0. That was before their 3-0 defeat by Bayern Munich in front of their home fans who departed early from the camp now in a sign 
of disgust. Is there any measure of realism about the situation in Barcelona, Ian, given the upheaval that there's been at the club over the last two years? Actually, there is in a way. Um, it, uh, 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 the fans last night were interesting. Yes, some of them did leave early once, once, once it was clear that they were that they were going to lose a game in which you know there was nothing to salvage except 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 pride, and and they didn't they didn't salvage any pride on the pitch. You know, there were there were eighty five thousand there. Uh, which for a game which became academic once once Inter had won in the in the afternoon kickoff um, is is quite something and yes well 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 some did leave early you're right about that in a sense the fans are quite realistic the trouble is that in itself is a sort of defeatism you know Barcelona are a Europa League club now and it's you know it's it's the second year running as you point out. Uh, the difference with last year of course is they've spent a huge amount of money trying not to be a Europa League club. Um, and they've they've got that money by mortgaging future assets. So they're losing money by dropping out of the Champions League. They have to be patient, I guess. And, and you wonder for a player like Lewandowski, who who cost them quite a lot of money and is now thirty four years old. You 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 know you wonder if he woke up this morning thinking, what have I let myself in for? As as he saw Bayern make their habitual progress to the next round and once again just look far superior to, to Barcelona. I, I, and I think that says it all. It's a, it's a gap between Barca and the top top teams and I think one of the biggest issues they've got is, is apart from Lewandowski, the players they signed in this splurge, this kind of Hail Mary splurge in the summer after pulling all their economic levers, they look like Europa League players. You know, they had a back. They had a backline of Alonso, Bellerin, Jules Kunde. I mean, that's a Europa League backline, isn't it? Rafinha. We don't know if he's a top top player. And leaving aside the madness of of the strategy, the implementation. I thought this whole summer, apart from Lewandowski, who are they signing here? Why are they mortgaging the club's future on this particular collection of players with a new man with a novice-ish manager? It just seems. Seems like it's not going to work. I, yeah, I agree with you. I, mean, I think uh, just on the detail, I think uh, Jules Koundé may have a, a Champions League caliber future. But yeah, you know, he's uh, that that remains to be seen. He's a he's a young player. I've, I felt for Hector Bellerin because um, I think he hasn't played Champions League football for five years, and he was up against uh, Sadio Mane, and uh, it really was a mismatch. You know, he, he doesn't look as fast anymore, which was one of his great assets in, at, at his peak. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. You, you, you know, you break down where where this money was spent, um, and 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 there's question marks against uh, against most of them. But you know, while while they did suddenly uh, find this money down the back of the sofa, there's there, there's also you know there's a caliber of footballer who, for all the the prestige, for all the nice place to live, etc. They pose themselves questions before they're prepared to to join Barcelona under, as you say, uh, an, a novice head coach who has made has made a lot of mistakes while re- remaining basically popular with his fans. Yeah, it's it's um, it, it's a club that, that's going to find it harder and harder to, to to draw in the best players, and because they no longer have this incredible mine of local talent, that there's still good players coming through. They've got to completely reassess the way they do things, and that that is going. To take a long time. I wonder what they're thinking at Atletico Madrid then, because they also went out of the Champions League in the group stage, pretty dramatic fashion. They were given a penalty after full time. 
and they missed it. <laughs> it was against Bayer Leverkusen. They drop into the Europa League, which they actually won in 2018 after failing to win that match. The 95th minute, the penalty was given for handball. Yannick Carrasco stepping up. These uh, efforts saved by Lucas Radetzky. Sal hit the bar with the follow-up. The third effort de- de- deflected over the crossbar. There was real drama there, but ultimately it points to, and I think immediately my friends just messaged and said, you know, how long can Simeone really stay in charge? Is it time for a fresh era? I think that's got to be the big question now. What do you think, Ian? With Atletico Madrid and their manager, you don't, normal criteria don't apply. You know, he's been there for more than 10 years, which is, which is astonishing, you know, in, in, in elite football these days. It r- really will be up to him still, although he's lost a lot of his, his, his touch this season they they and and in fact last season to to a certain extent they do look more chaotic the you know the the control that he exerted so well for so long isn't there anymore as Simeone said that 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 sums up a lot of what Atletico have have been recently um he was he was bemoaning bad luck principally but it's also you know it's also the the loss of control which is you know so much his his trademark uh, but you know he's not. Uh, I could be proved wrong, but I don't think he's going to be immediately sacked. I think I think he will decide when he leaves that club, um, and it will be it'll be a seismic day uh, when he does because he is he is so much tied up with with who they are. But who they are at the moment is 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 not a challenger for the kind of competitions that he has he has made them so good in. You know, two Champions League finals under him, two Liga titles. Uh, those aren't going to happen again this season. All of it, though, makes for uh, what should be a pretty stunning Europa League uh, with a lot of big names uh, going into the hat. Um, And yeah, two big European competitions for us to follow for the rest of the campaign, but big issues at those uh, three clubs we just mentioned. We're going to be talking about a new manager coming in from Spain to the Premier League next as Unai Emery arrives at Aston Villa. Aston Villa have appointed Unai Emery as their new manager after they sacked Steven Gerrard, of course, the former Arsenal boss who had been in charge of the Spanish club Villarreal takes over at Villa on the 1st of November. They've paid a buyout fee, £5.2 million for the 50-year-old. He, of course, joined Villarreal in 2020. It led them to Europa League success in 2021, beating Manchester United in the final he also reached last year's Champions League semi-finals, uh, losing 5-2 to Liverpool on aggregate. He is a great coach, a hugely respected coach, a hugely successful coach as well. Jonathan, maybe he isn't seen by a lot of fans in this country through though that lens and more so to do with his time at Arsenal, which didn't go the way he would have hoped. He, he almost became a bit of a, a figure of humour amongst certain football fans as well. And I wonder whether if things go badly for Aston Villa, that will come back I hope it doesn't I sincerely hope it doesn't because personally I feel it's tinged with xenophobia but there you go um it still though I think means that there needs to be a right fit for Unai Emery and he needs to get time and that right fit we've seen at Spanish clubs but didn't happen for him really at Paris Saint-Germain didn't really happen for him in England do you feel like this could be different for him I really hope it is for some of the reasons you mentioned Hugh I think his the characterization of him at Arsenal wasn't just tinged with xenophobia it was it screamed of xenophobia it was it was silly it was asinine it was pathetic the guy was trying his best from the start to speak English and and 
you know, <laughs> speaking English a lot better than most of the uh, sort of clowns on Twitter who laughed at him could speak Spanish. And you get beyond that, that you see that the Arsenal experience was probably the one real blip of what's been a glittering managerial career. Yes, he didn't win the Champions League with PSG, but but he actually did, let's say, a bit better than Mauricio Pochettino did um, as, as PSG manager and about the same as Thomas Tuchel almost. Um, and he has just done so well with clubs of the Aston Villa sort um, size and, and ambitions that it's very logical. I I, I, I hope he does well. He, he, he's, I think he's offered Paco Oreste and the, the, the assistant manager's job, which is um, an intelligent move as well, I think, because he's got a great manner with players and also, you know, other staff at the club. I just, my, my fears for him are that, first of all, the, the, the Arsenal baggage and that infecting fans and the media's view of him and him not getting a fair chance. And there is a slight style of football worry where, you know, we were talking earlier about Conte and I do think the Premier League now is so much of a high-octane um, thrills and spills league in everyone's minds that trying to do things in a more structured, studious, cautious way doesn't always go down well with supporters in, in, in a particular point in time. And I don't think Emery's going to be thrilling anyone with his football. I don't think that's what he what he does. So he needs results to kind of get people to buy into the style of football and to get them over that baggage. He needs to make an impact fairly quickly. And I hope he does, as I say, because he's an excellent coach. And if he can get past that initial bump and get people coming along with him, he really can be a guy that, that, that takes Villa to, to that echelon they want to be in. Gregor, what do you make of the uh, the union here between Villa and, and Emery? Do you believe it will be a successful one? What, and what are the big, I think, questions and, and problems that he will need to solve immediately? I kind of have, agree with Johnny in that I have some reservations and that I don't think it would take a lot for fans to become disgruntled, partly because of his baggage from Arsenal and partly because of, as Johnny said, the style of play. Like, I, you know, as I said, I was... On Monday, I was at the I was at the game on Sunday at Villa Park, and at Rangers, it was all about kind of industry and front foot football, basically, and it didn't really translate at Villa, and they and they 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 believed it was kind of over conservative and cautious, and I think they want a a break from that now. That was like, as I said, it was like a liberation for them on uh, on Sunday. So there will be a kind of uh, uh, unless they win, it's like Conte, unless unless it's winning football, I think it would be quicker for for fans to hear their frustrations, basically. But look, he's got. Great, pred- great pedigree, and uh, the thing that Johnny said that chimed with me there is that they're clubs of, if not a similar stature to Villa, a similar kind of standing. Uh, a lot of the clubs that he's had success at in the past, so you know that that's kind of there's some some synergy there. But what has he got to tackle? I think it's getting it's finding a system and a kind of a way of of getting the most out of the players that they spend a lot of money on, because that ultimately will be the squad he's got to work with for a while. I'm sure he'll, he'll be backed and supported, but it's not going to be something that he can change overnight. So it's getting the most out of players like Buendia and Bailey and Danny Ings and getting a bit more from Watkins. Because undoubtedly there's goals and creativity in that forward line. And it's just it was just kind of stifled this season and for the tail end of last season under Gerrard. So I think that's probably his, his biggest his biggest test. I think you'll, you've got to remember at Arsenal, they went 22 games at one point without losing and they got to you know in his first season I think 
that kind of solid, obdurate block is what he's good at. So I, th- I would, I would say he can. He'll, you know, they won't have a problem with that at Villa. It's about getting the attacking players who have undoubted talent producing on a regular basis. I think that's going to be his biggest challenge at Villa. I'm not sure though, because that obdurate block, um, when it comes to the personnel in Villa's squad, I, I think the talent is is further forward on the on the pitch right now. Anyway, in terms of who's available, particularly. I also think Emery's best sides have been fully committed to exactly what he wants them to do. With all due respect to that Aston Villa squad, we haven't seen that from them uh, in this run under Steven Gerrard. Not just, I'm not just talking about commitment to what Steven Gerrard wanted them to do, just the genuine commitment out there on the pitch. We just haven't seen. Now, maybe things were going badly behind the scenes. We don't know what happened to the confidence of the side. But like I say, I wonder if these players, modern day players, will believe in the obdurate block and basically running through walls for the manager, particularly when most of them, their best talents are in playing attacking football. And that is why I I think maybe, not necessarily that, that Emery's not a great fit for the club, but that I don't think this is an Unai Emery squad. And I think if he's going to be a great manager at Aston Villa... They're going to have to be quite a lot of changes in personnel. I don't know. How do you see it, Ian? You're right. He's um, he's he's got to win everybody round, and and he will not uh, spare. He will not. He will put plenty of time into that. The team talks will be very very long, very rigorous. The videos will be shown, replayed, spliced, cut, <laughs> and watched again. You know, he 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 is he's he's a, he's a He's a manager of absolute rigor, and and it's it's fabulous when it works, and when there is, when there is total buy-in. I'm not privy to, you know, the the the, the Stephen Gerrard method, but um, I think uh, I think he will make a very strong impression as soon as he wa- walks in. Uh, I, I think his um, you know his English is is certainly much better than was caricatured at Arsenal, but that communication is really important to the to the way he works. So he will also have worked very, very hard on making that effective. He also, you know, he 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 will have thought about taking this job very carefully. He turned down Newcastle this time last year because he had not so much reservations about about Newcastle's structure and owners, etc., but that he was he was still committed to Villarreal. This is a very carefully thought out uh, decision. Um, he'll he'll know the squad back to front um, and and he will back himself but but I, I I do agree with you Hugh I think there are there are some there are some question marks and I I I wouldn't I wouldn't bet heavily that that it's going to be an instant success or that he would still be there in say three years time okay we wait to see exactly what Unai Emery can deliver at Aston Villa but he did once famously joke as Arsenal boss that he was watching Peaky Blinders to help his English and so it will be perfect this time around <laughs> finally coming to use I'm sure uh, listen I do wish him well though I hope he does well at Aston Villa it's a great club good squad good players love to see him get the best out of them he's a good guy as well um, listen before we go on today's podcast it is that time the alternative player of the month awards where we of course pick out players that we don't think will be getting the main award from the Premier League but certainly deserve true credit Gregor I'm going to start with you this week okay I was very tempted to give it to Willian after watching his shimmering display against Aston Villa shocking Aston Villa and having a decisive impact against Leeds United at the weekend as well because of the sheer surprise of it. I didn't know he still had it in him. But I'm actually going to go for one of his teammates instead, Bobby De cordova reed I just think he's someone who, like, is an under-the-radar absolute 7.5 out of 10 in almost any position on the pitch. 
uh, and this this month has in particular has shown that he's he's scored two of his three goals this season during October. He started this month playing basically left in a front three. Uh, and ended it playing the last four games at right back. He filled, basically filled in for Kenny Tetty, who's injured his hamstring. But he's chosen ahead of Kevin and Babu, who Fulham signed from Wolfsburg in the summer. And I, again, for, in that Villa game I was at, he was him and Anthony Robinson on the left were were superb, bombing forward, whipping crosses in for Mitrovic in the box. I just think he's a real kind of unsung hero. Someone who, you know, he's dipped in and out of the Premier League with Cardiff City, with Fulham. I don't think he's ever looked out of place. He's not going to tear up trees scoring, you know, 15 goals a season. But you can play him anywhere and he will not let you down. So I think he's shown that uh, even more so this this month. And I'm going to go for Decord over Reid. Johnny, who have you chosen? Well, I'm going for Tarks. Old James Tarkovsky at, uh, at Everton, um, who's probably nobody's idea of a silky modern hipster footballer but there's just something very reassuring about watching this guy go about his work because he just he a big a big a big reason for Everton's upsurge under Lampard has been they've recovered that 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 doggedness um horribleness to play against and solidity and it's been founded on Tarkovsky and, and and Cody at the back and Cody gets more plaudits he's a much more kind of engaging character appealing character but Beside him, he's got just a rock of granite sitting there in the box, blocking everything that comes his way, never making any sort of frilly, fancy decisions, doing the basics. And I saw him at Spurs um, a couple of weeks ago. He can ping a ball as well. You know, he, he I wouldn't. He's actually better hitting the ball seventy yards than he is hitting the ball three yards. He's he's got a great ping um, out to the out the flanks. So he's not just the one dimensional rock, but yeah, I, I I think he's been a real unsung, reliable player. And I was just looking at a couple of stats about him. Um, a couple three things that really strike me. If you go on fbref.com, I don't know if anyone has a sort of pleasure doing that, that I, I get but I, I like just looking at players and, and where they come in terms of the percentiles of in different categories and for, for blocks clearances and aerials one he is at 99% among defenders and that's James Tarkovsky and the other stat that, that blows my mind he's only 29 I mean I don't know he's, I think he's, he seems to have come out of the 1970s and, and be about 56 but anyway still only 29 so James Tarkovsky for me Ian who have you chosen well I'm, I'm concerned here you know with 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 Gregor's vote that that the voting is going to be divided between Reeds who play for Fulham I've gone for Harrison Reed who has had a, an excellent season for a Fulham who who looked nothing like the the Fulham that Harrison Reed played for last time in the Premier League. He he's got all sorts of qualities that 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 fit Marco Silva's Fulham. He's got he's got the aggression, which is such a conspicuous part of what they they are now and what they weren't a couple of years ago. Um, but there's much more to Harrison Reed than that. He's um, he's a head up, creative, imaginative player who who is who is who is working very well with Palinha, who we all know has been an excellent addition to the side. But he'll take players on and and he's beginning to to discover that he can score goals as well. I think if you asked Fulham regulars, they, they would they would indeed praise Bobby Decordova De read a lot as as Gregor has, but but um you know he he really is at the the state of being being a cult hero for Fulham and and just seems to get better and better and better. 
down Fulham Way, I know that they, they're thinking that Gareth Southgate should take a good look at him, but yeah, that's probably optimistic. Okay, well, I've gone for another player that maybe Gareth Southgate should take a look at, who I think, you know, Newcastle are just a different side with him there. He hasn't maybe got the goals that his work rate has deserved so far this month, but I think he has been a huge um, addition for Newcastle in the absence of Alexander Isak. That's Callum Wilson, who again, like I say, not every game does he get the the stats, if you like, but I just think the tenacity for him up front, the coordinated press, the quality in which he closes down and also forces defenders down certain channels with the ball, it's absolutely perfect for what Eddie Howe wants to do in terms of their defending from the front. He leads in that area, and for me, that's Callum Wilson. I know Miguel Almiron gets a lot of the credit, but I think he'll probably get nominated for Player of the Month, the, the main award. And so I went for one of his teammates, Callum Wilson, who I actually think Almiron has thrived off. And so that's why I went for Callum Wilson, who, again, is left field. But there you go. That's what Alternative Player of the Month is all about. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your nominations and for being with me for the past hour or so. And thank you all for listening. Uh, if you want more from The Times, go to the app. Make sure you download it. Want more from the game? You can check it out online. It's the times.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Monday.